hardworking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Zach Albetta, and this is the podcast Working Drummer. Today, I talk with drummer and band leader Willie McNeil. He's been in L.A. for over three decades, playing in almost any type of band you can imagine over that time, and he is the leader of no less than eight bands right now, ranging from salsa to soul. In recent years, his signature project, Big Willie's Burlesque, has become the centerpiece of the burlesque scene in L.A. He talks about L.A. now versus when he moved there in the early 80s, how to put on a crowd-pleasing show, and lots more. Before we get to that, I want to let you know that this episode of Working Drummer is sponsored by OnlineDrummer.com. OnlineDrummer.com provides drummers of all ages and skill levels with the best educational resources, including videos, sheet music, ebooks, articles, Skype lessons, and more. OnlineDrummer.com puts all these tools at your fingertips to help you improve your playing. Working Drummer podcast listeners can get a free download of the sheet music of your choice by visiting OnlineDrummer.com and entering the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER. No dots, no spaces. Again, go to OnlineDrummer.com and enter the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER for one free download of the sheet music of your choice. Get practice tips, build your chops, work out new styles, or learn your favorite song today at OnlineDrummer.com. So let's get to my talk with Willie McNeil. He has a huge range of experience, and he's a colorful character. He's, uh, he's got some opinions, and he's not shy with them. So buckle up, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. So let's just begin at the beginning. Where, where, okay. did, you, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? Uh, I'm from Kansas, from Topeka, Kansas. I did not know that. Yeah. I'm, I spent seven years in Kansas City. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kansas City's a great town. Well, they always, it's funny because people always go, oh, it's a great music town. I'm like, yeah, in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they don't get it. Like, now I don't think it's such a great music town. It, I think it's, there's it good? a really good scene there. It's, okay. not, it's not the old school jazz scene that it mm-hmm. used to be. There's a lot of really creative, original uh, uh, projects and people that, that happen there. Um, but how long did you spend in Topeka? Yeah, uh, well, I went to junior high and high school there. Okay. And then I moved to L.A. when I was 19. And did you come out here for college, or did no? You just... I was in a punk band. I was in a punk band in the Midwest in the '79, '80, and '81 called Abuse. And it was uh, one of uh, one of the sort of only punk bands to come out of Topeka and one out of the area. And you got to remember, times were very different back then. It was before MTV, and to be different and to do something different was it was difficult yeah. because there wasn't you know it was like every, everything was all like. You know, leftover hippie, long hair, foreigner, journey, mm-hmm. sticks, you know. And if you, you know, even like I said, into the late 70s. And we were doing punk rock and had short hair and stuff. And, uh, it, you know, it was people really, you know, it wasn't like now. Now I think people are a lot more open to different things. Mm-hmm. People are a lot more closed-minded to things. So it was difficult. But we were a good band. And we came out here uh, because we had a, 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 another guy from Topeka. Uh, named uh, Carlton Page, get smart. His name is Alan Oschlager. He used to play in Piper, actually, back in the seventies. But he had a, a management deal, and uh, sorry, he had a publishing deal and management here in L.A. Mm-hmm. And he'd written some songs for some pop artists out here, and so he had us come out to be his band. 
Wow. So that's why we moved out. And we'd done pretty much everything we could do back in the Midwest because there wasn't, you know, we opened up for, you know, bands like the Go-Go's and 999 and, right. you know, kind of were the darlings of the underground punk scene. Uh-huh. And so then we moved out here to make it big. <laughs> and did you? Oh, no. <laughs> all bands that moved to L.A. split up within half a year. A year <laughs> right, right. And most couples. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what you you uh, came out here to be part of a band that quickly disbanded? Yeah. And then what? Oh, and then I started uh, my own first band that I was a leader of uh, called The Hot Spots with a good friend of mine, Kevin Williams, who's also, I met in Topeka. He's from L.A., but he moved there. And uh, from there, uh, the, really the big thing, I used to work at this club called The On Club, with that, and it was a real ha- happening place for ska and reggae mm-hmm. back in the early 80s. And that's what kind of a band The Hotspots was? It was a ska band. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then um, I got a job in like about 83, I think it was, at this place called Flip on Melrose, and it was a used clothing store, and it made, kind of made Melrose what Melrose is. Right. Uh, not that it's that much these days, but it used to, you know. <laughs> And uh, it was great because then I really met like everybody in the in the music. So they hired so many musicians. It was a big used clothing store. It was, had a, two huge stores, and they hired loads and loads of people. And of course, they hired lots of you know gays and lots of English people and lots of cool looking musicians. You know. Yeah, yeah. And so I met like everybody who was kind of on the scene, and it really kind of launched my career. Right. And it particularly launched my career because I met this guy Jason Mayall, mm-hmm. who was John Mayall's son. Right. And uh, he's really still, even to this day, been a big uh, factor in my, kind of my angel in my career. He's hooked me up with some of the biggest gigs I've ever had. Right. So, as soon as you got out here, you started your own band. Yeah. And you were the leader of that band. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you go to Willie's well, website... Well, co- co-leader, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, if you, if you go to Willie's website, you'll find like eight different bands that, mm-hmm. that he plays with. Um, it's pretty amazing, actually. But our, I want to ask you about how you uh, became of the mindset to be the leader of a band and the leader of many bands instead of you know, I, I like a lot of cats come to LA or New York to, to be a sideman mm-hmm. um, but what made you want to be a leader I don't know I think it was just in my mentality like uh, when I was in school I mean I'm so, I was a product of like the the school band system mm-hmm. that's where I learned to read music and I took piano lessons in theory and, and of course drum you know played in all the different bands and uh, I was always the section leader, you know, I, so I guess I've kind of always been someone who's maybe good at leading, mm-hmm. you're good at being in charge, Yeah. and uh, I think I have a good way of working with people, Yeah. and so, uh, you know, I don't know, I, it just came out, and uh, like I said, this friend of mine, Kevin, and I, we were... We, we started working at this club. He was, like, doing the sound, and I was just, like, hanging out there, picking up on chicks, and I'd make a few extra dollars, <laughs> like, collecting bottles at the end of the night. You know, I was, like, right. 20 years old or right, something. Right, right. And, um, and then we were like, we ought to put a band together, so we just put it together, and, and we wrote a bunch of original music together. Yeah. So I, and that just kind of happened uh, uh, organically. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I guess later on I was a side man and I played rock and roll up until like 89 mm-hmm. and then in 89 I again did another uh, co-leader thing with Joe Altruda and Jump with Joey and also the Soul Sonics around the same time with my partner Jazz Collin and then it really wasn't until I got the uh, 
the gig uh, as the musical director at the 40 Deuce in like 2004 that I really kind of struck out just on my own, being a leader on my own. So right. It's been a long process. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you started in a punk band and then mm-hmm. after that, ska, reggae. Uh, uh-huh. I, I knew, uh, you know, you have uh, a reputation around town as being heavy into the swing, heavy into burlesque, heavy into the whole vintage thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I only recently learned how involved you've been in all these other kinds of music. Yeah, it's funny because when I, I've been in town like 34 years and, you know, you run into the people you've known on the scene from back, you know, 30 years ago or something or, or people come up to me and go like, well, I know you, I know you, you look familiar and it's like, well, yeah, what, what decade or <laughs> right. what, what band, you know. <laughs> yeah, I used to just, uh, uh, to make it quick, I used to, let's see, uh, uh, in the, um, my first major touring act, uh, well, I guess I should preface this. Another thing I've always done is I've always played in more than one band. I've always done like a lot of different bands at once. Mm-hmm. And that's why it makes it easy to, I think now when I have a lot of bands, I lead, switch gears. Mm-hmm. Because I've always done more than one band. Because I got my fr- I was in this band, Tupelo Chain Sex, which was this crazy psychobilly band. Like from like This, this interview is just going to be a study in band names, I yeah, can yeah. tell. It's- <laughs> and, 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 and like in 83, I think I started playing like in Tupelo Chain Sex. And that band, I, I did uh, four records with them. Mm. And it was a pretty cool band. That band was really hip. That really influenced Fishbone a lot and the Chili Peppers, particularly Fishbone. Uh-huh. Because we crossed a whole bunch of different styles of music. We do like, you know, like a... A rockabilly tune with the reggae one drop drum beat underneath it or like weird stuff we mixed like blues and jazz and punk rock and all kinds of stuff together and, yeah. and nobody was really doing that you kind of at the time did one genre mm-hmm. and that's I think Fishbone we used to play with them a lot and they kind of picked that up like oh that's why if you see Fishbone they do a bunch of different styles right. they don't just do one thing and I think we were influential in that right. in that band on them but um so that was two below change sex and then at the same time I got my first um, uh, international uh, touring act uh, with uh, uh, J- uh, Jason Mayall's father, uh, John Mayall, uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breaker, and that was when I was 21. That's the first time I went to Europe and started doing international touring. So that was pretty hip. I moved when I was 19, and by 21, I was already touring internationally. Yeah. But it wasn't really my thing, because everybody was like old enough to be my dad in the van, and it was like the blues, and at the time, even though it was like 85 there were still loads of leftover hippies, particularly in Europe and stuff, or in Jersey or wherever. Yeah. And like, you know, you'd go and there'd be all these, like, old hippie dudes. I'm like, it's not my scene. I was like a punk rocker, so. Right. You know. But it was great, great experience and, and great, you know, like I said, my first international tour. Right. Did you have a specific strategy when you got here? No. No, it was just kind of who you met on the clubs and, 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 and stuff. Right. Like I said, it was really lucky that I got this gig at Flip, this, the clothing store in Melrose, because that was a great place to network. Right. Because everybody, like, uh, everybody, like, from people from Tex and the Horseheads and, you know, Jimmy and the Mustangs and, like, whatever, like, all these bands, they right. all worked. And you'd, yeah. never, you'd never think that. Like, you talk about, you know, musicians talk about getting a job tending bar at a place they mm-hmm. want to play or, or whatever, but you got a job at a clothing store. Um, yeah, and where everybody everybody just hung out there. Yeah, that's where everybody went to get their clothes. It was like I said, it was like the place that really made Malrose what it was. Right. So all these different styles that you play um, is have you been have you been interested in many different things from an early age, or have yeah. you just gradually added? Uh, yeah, no. Even like from like when I started 
you know, I guess, you know, I'm kind of from a musical family, and both my parents play instruments, and my oldest brother and my sister also play instruments. And so, mm-hmm. of course, you know, I, you do the stuff you do in high school band and all. Uh, but, you know, like my brothers and stuff were into rock and roll and, and whatever. And, uh, and, um, and then when I started getting into punk rock and stuff, one of the first things that happened was back in the day when you go to the stores that would carry the punk rock records and stuff, they also have a reggae section. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I really got into the reggae back then. I got into Bob. I was already into Bob Marley and stuff, like, you know, and then I started really getting more into, like, the two-tone specials sort of scene, and then also more into heavy dub and to, like, the real roots reggae stuff, you know. Yeah. Not just the pop, Jimmy Cliff, Bob Marley kind of stuff. Right, right. And so, yeah, so already then I was already splitting into two. And then when I moved here, it was like, then I really started getting into African music. I saw Fela Kuti at the Olympic Auditorium. It really, one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah. And I was opened up for King Sonny Day at the Greek Theater. And, that you know, so... You started getting more around and more around, and then yeah. here, you know, KCRW always had good reggae and right. reggae shows and right. stuff like that back in the day. Did you ever take formal study with anyone to learn any of these styles? Did you? Yeah, not till later, not till like '89. Then I started to study um, Afro-Cuban music with who? Oh boy, a lot of different people. I'd say Ramon Bandas, mm-hmm. you know, a guy I've gone with Tiki Pasillas. Um, who else? Uh, you know, a lot of different people. Robertito Melendez, uh, different people here in town. Uh, the, really, the best, the most studying I did, or the best study, is when I went to Cuba. I've been to Cuba three times, and wow. I studied there with Enrique Pla, who's the drummer for Irekere, uh-huh. and they're a seminal band. Chucho Valdez, the yeah. band leader, and he plays drum set. You know, and he did back in the 70s, you know, and so he was sort of a precursor to the modern timba sound that always uses drum set in Cuban music. But mm-hmm. So he played drum set, and I, I studied drum set with him, and then I studied the timbal with uh, Emilio Del Monte from the group Cubanissimo. Yeah. Um, what do you think are some, some common misconceptions or, or mistakes uh, when it comes to Afro-Cuban music and, mm-hmm. and uh, American drummers? Oh, uh, let me see. The, the mistake... Well, the biggest mistake is always with the sound man, <laughs> because they always want to mic the kick and the snare, and it's not about that. It's about the bell. It's about mm-hmm. the campana. That's the like the bass drum in Cuban music. But for American drummers, oh, I'd say the biggest mistake is uh, like particularly um, uh, drummers that went to like Berkeley or drummers that went to like music schools, mm-hmm. North Texas State or whatever. They'll get a thing of like they'll be like if you're on a casual or something, and the band leader will say, "Oh, this is a Latin feel," and most jazz players immediately go to like a samba field and it's like that's a Brazilian rhythm right? and that's what you play to a samba that's not what you play over a Cuban tune over like a mambo or a salsa or whatever right you know yeah the the difference between Brazilian and Afro-Cuban is completely different com- yeah. And, yeah and a lot of people don't even know no, that there's a difference and until I was I don't know 22 or 23 I was one of those people yeah it's all kind of under the big Latin tent exactly and yeah yeah so uh, yeah that's that would be the biggest mistake because you know I, I see that you know and, and bass players too like for bass players to get the concept of tumbao mm-hmm. it's a pretty heavy concept and it really takes a long time to really grasp right and um, you're not going to get it overnight you know the, the intricacies of it like you might be able to play the rhythm early on but that doesn't you know mean <laughs> you got it necessarily yeah. Yeah. 
So you came to LA in 1981 at age 19. Yeah. So uh, take a drummer who's coming to LA today uh-huh. at age 19 or early 20s or, or whatever. Right. Um, how do you think uh, your experience was better or worse or harder or easier? What, what do you think the difference is between your experience and somebody coming oh, to L.A. today? It's completely different. It was way easier for me. Was it? Oh, yeah, because um, you got to remember, uh, this was before DJ culture. And so every band, every club had like three bands a night. The whole scene evolved around live music. Mm-hmm. So every club, you know, particularly in Hollywood, there was a Cafe de Grand and the Club Lingerie and whatever every club had three bands a night at least some would have five mm-hmm. you know and everyone did like a 45 minute like set and so everyone came to see the band the whole scene was based around the bands like you never even saw a dj like club lingerie was like the only place i had a dj it was kind of novel and they kind of spin in between the bands you know mm-hmm. so that was the main difference so it was really you know and back then also it was very inexpensive here, particularly mm. in Hollywood, because Hollywood was really pretty beat right. in the early 80s. So it was kind of like, you know, neighborhood that wasn't, you know, people didn't want to move here. Mm-hmm. So you could get like a really nice apartment, like some of these big old lovely apartments, wood floors from the 30s or right. whatever, and for really cheap, mm-hmm. go get some big old, you know, like the English. I had a lot of English friends just because I met all these English people at Flip. And they loved it. The English boys come here, they get laid all the time. You know, the English accent went a long way. And they come and they get some big old cars, some like Pontiac convertible like for 500 bucks. And they loved it. They were living the dream. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it was like that way somewhat for musicians. So you could come. There were people like bass players I knew or even some drummers that could make a living just playing in three or four different bands and like gigging like, you know, because the thing is like pay hasn't really changed there were still hundred dollar gigs back then mm-hmm. yeah. you know so given given the higher degree of competition in LA and mm-hmm. uh, there's fewer opportunities than there were to play and the cost of living is higher mm-hmm. do you do you still recommend young drummers come to LA and see what they can do uh, yeah either LA or a major city you have to go to LA New York London Tokyo mm-hmm. you have to be at a, a major center mm-hmm. if you really want to like do it in my yeah. opinion so and and how do you recommend they survive? Because you said in your day it was pretty easy to survive. It's yeah. pretty easy to do your yeah. thing. Right. Um, I don't know. Everybody has their own way of doing it. You yeah. Know, everyone's got to find their own path. These days, a lot of people teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would recommend doing something on the something to deal with the internet. Something that kind of because I think these days. Uh, part of being successful is having a big internet presence and mm-hmm. you know knowing like for instance there used to be a whole system put in place of the way you can make money with like getting a deal and having the distributors and touring and all this stuff and that model's kind of gone right and the people who seem to do well the people who know how to like work the internet in their favor and know mm-hmm. how to make money off the internet so yeah i would recommend getting some sort of it job to have that kind of skill so when you need to do your own social networking sort of thing right how did how did you adapt to that what the computer stuff yeah oh it was hard (laughs) but no you have a you have a good online presence you have a good social media presence you have a beautiful website yeah so like what what do you have do you have a strategy as far as your online presence not really uh i guess my wife you can blame my wife or you can thank my wife i should say uh she pestered me for years to get the website together so i finally did it uh, as far as the the, um, uh, the online presence, I would say the the, the burlesque thing kind of really helps mm. because um, 
they you know re repost a lot of stuff yeah uh, and it also helps that I have like I've been doing burlesque now for 13 years mm -hmm. so I have tons and tons of photos right with beautiful women naked half naked clad women and so right. that always makes for good images like I see some you know people like in bands or whatever and I see the images they put up and it's all like blurry and out yeah. of focus and dark and like stupid like guys standing around it's like that's not really like what you, you know, that's not going to make a good impression right whereas I just kind of have a picture of me and like one of the ladies it's like it's a strong image yeah and it's good photography too um, yeah because there's good photographers I mean these days yeah yeah, yeah. I worked uh, with this bass player Joe Altruda uh, for 22 years and uh, he got a call from Ivan Kane the owner of the 40 Deuce mm -hmm. and so he was like hey I got this like burlesque gig together it was right next door to the studio we had a studio because the, the club's at Melrose and Gower in Hollywood right across from Paramount mm -hmm. and he had a recording studio just literally two doors down so we could go hang out in the recording studio on our breaks mm -hmm. and um so got the gig and it was four nights a week wednesday through saturday wow. and um like it was funny because we were hanging out and if it, originally we were going to kind of like do this keeps happening on residencies for me we're like it's like well we're just going to kind of keep a bunch of people in the loop like have like sort of two or three people for every chair right. and kind of spread the wealth around. But then the owner's like, no, I want this guy and I want this, you know, it gets mm -hmm. to be like, I want the A team and the B team. And right. So you get your first, second, third call kind of guy. Mm -hmm. But um, we got the gig and we were kind of sitting around one time laughing because I think it started in May or something and we were like, because it wasn't really happening, when we, like wasn't busy when mm -hmm. we first started doing it. We were sort of sitting around, yeah, this is not going to last till like Thanksgiving, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And then it just blew up massively and, and became... It really kind of put burlesque on the map in Los Angeles in a commercial sense. Right. There was already a lot of burlesque happening for years before, particularly with the Velvet Hammer mm -hmm. and other things, but it was still very underground mm -hmm. and kind of what I would call the tattooed fat slags from Silverlink version of burlesque. <laughs> and uh, Whereas this, these were professional dancers. And the main difference was the way he was presented it and the fact that he, the DJ would play like, you know, uh, the latest dance music, hip hop and what have you, you know, interspersed like with sort of a classic burlesque show, right. which we didn't really care for. Like we'd always go outside on the break because we couldn't stand the music they played in between. Mm -hmm. But that's what made it accessible. Right. Brought it into the mainstream. We brought it into mainstream. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you were you were just in a house band. Yeah. We were just, I was just in a house band. For the dancers. The, uh, yeah. And then it became sort of clear early on that I had a, a good rapport with the dancers. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of learned from hanging with them and stuff how to write arrangements for them. And Yeah. Talk about that. What is yeah. what is your musical approach for a burlesque show? Well, the musical approach is um, uh, I really like to do a two-song medley, mm -hmm. going from a slow song into a fast song. Uh, obviously, the medley needs to segue seamlessly from the slow into the fast. Um, uh, during the during the slow tune, you know, you do the traditional bump and grind kind of beat on the floor tom. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's so great about that beat is you can catch any movement that the dancer does. Yeah. Like if you're doing a rock tune or a jazz swing tune or something, you're you're kind of busy. But when you're doing the the floor tom beat, you can really catch any kick or throw when they throw any closer. You can catch it whether it's on the off beat or on beat or wherever it yeah. is. You know. Yeah. And also, I think it's very important during the slow part of the tune that you. 
the thing that most people don't do is they don't follow the dancer. Mm -hmm. So you need to follow the dancer. When they start shaking, you got to like play the bells or toms and do a shake. When they're doing a split and they go down into like a split and they hit the ground, you need to do a full stop, mm. like a dead stop, and the whole band needs to do it. Then it has a real dramatic effect. Yeah. And the kick, boom, you hit the cymbal, you know. Right. Whatever. And also, like, not too much cymbal. Like, I always have just used one ride and a hi-hat. Like, a lot of people, they get real cymbal heavy, and to me, it's that's not appropriate in a burlap, but that's my opinion. Yeah. But um, I see that a lot. Why? Um, why what about the cymbals? Don't it's just not too traditional sounding it gets too I don't know yeah uh, but uh, so then then when you get to the fast uh, number uh, usually uh, I try to have contour to to the to it either have sections that go double time and go back or uh, go into a 6-8 section or something to give the song contour so it's not like just a slow tempo into a fast tempo because mm -hmm. dancers really like uh, they, they like rhythmic punches and stuff to grab to to hit to but they also like time changes and, and time signature changes and things that in other words a song that goes someplace yeah. not just a stagnant one beat you know one rhythm which is kind of you know opposite of like a jazz song you know because mm -hmm. usually you play it's just one rhythm one tempo the whole way through right you're not going to do decelerandos and accelerandos and you know things like that but typically I would build do, I'd write in a special arrangement like three quarters of the way through the fast tune to where to the point where they take off their outer bra to the pasties or mm -hmm. under bra whatever they're going down to mm -hmm. and then there should be a big climactic hit for that when they take it off and then it should just kind of be like okay I'm out of here because once you take off and you don't have much else to take off then right. you kind of need to end the tune right right um, what about the uh, the material for uh -huh. those songs because like you said a lot of it is jazz based right but if, if you go see a uh, but if, you know, if I see one of your shows at No Vacancy or the Edison or wherever, mm -hmm. you're drawing from a lot of different areas, yeah. a lot of different genres. I usually always chat with the dancer because this is another secret, I think, to my success is that, you know, some people would just be like, oh, I play music and you dance. And mm -hmm. I kind of be a bitch about it. And like, here's the tune, dance right, to it. Right. You know, which I, I didn't really think was the right attitude to have. So I always just chat with the dancer. What do you like? What kind of music do you like? Oh, you like rock and roll? Or what do you like? The Stones or Zeppelin or you know what modern stuff what are you, what are you into right. well, luckily I worked with this uh, dancer Carolina Sarisola and we both loved Cuban music cool and so I wrote a lot of Cuban arrangements for her uh, or Latin arrangements you know and uh, so that was the secret there is you ask the dancer what they're into and then you can kind of like you know go with it and like I had one dancer who was, who was from uh, um, French Polynesia from Tahiti, mm -hmm. so I wrote this big, you know, Polynesian drum break into one of the tunes. Yeah, and then, like I said, with the Latin dancers, I can write Latin arrangements. They're more into the rock and roll. Like I had this whole Led Zeppelin medley that was like really popular, and you know, <laughs> it was like, and you wouldn't think you could pull off a Led Zeppelin medley without vocals, without a guitar, even without a chordal instrument, but wow. we did. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because you know it's so recognizable. That's the other thing too: recognizable material. It's got to be, you know. I think you know a big mistake that a lot of musicians make, no matter what instrument they play, is they don't get that they're not playing for musicians. Mm -hmm. You know, they they're like, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, they're worried about oh somebody blew these changes or this or that. And it's like nobody knows. Right? Oh, you're singing flat or something. Nobody knows. Yeah. It's you're like it's more people. it's more about being an. They want to be entertained, mm -hmm. and so. 
I think a lot of musicians would do better if they think more along the the route of being an entertainer as opposed to being like a jazz poet. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about the other groups that you lead that, that are active right now and what, what they okay. do. Uh, at, active at the moment, I've been working uh, uh, at the Edison like seven and a half years with Big Willie's Burlesque and at the La Descarga, it's a club. I work, uh, I've been there five and a half years with the little Cuban uh, quartet. Mm-hmm. I call it Sono Lux Jr. Because uh, Sono Lux is my kind of modern t- contemporary timba Cuban band, but I don't work with them that much these days. I had a residency with them every Tuesday for six and a half years at the King King, but yeah. I stopped doing it because it's, it's, it's really hard doing it like a 10 11 piece band. Yeah. For the door. Right. <laughs> and. Uh, 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 I've been working a lot with this band Mambo Loco with the singer Iris Cepeda and um, we do like 40s like 30s and 40s Mambo 50s stuff yeah. which is I thought would do better than it's done because there's lots of people doing vintage Americana bands right like with the dress and everything but yeah. there was no one doing Latin music like that well mm-hmm. maybe I see why because there's not much of a call for it <laughs> <laughs> but I do get things every once in a while for people who you know want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I st- currently work uh, and lead a band at No Vacancy with a partner of mine, Bill Ungerman, and there we do like '60s rock and soul mm-hmm. and some '70s and, stuff. And we back up a tightrope walker and a fire dancer and burlesque dancers there. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a smorgasbord of a gig because yeah. there are some just band numbers, and yeah. then there's like a very vaudeville sort of uh, exactly. tightrope guy who juggles and and right. whatever. That's yeah. a really fun gig. And then with him and James Aker, I lead a band called the New Recessionaires, and we do a vintage music like twenties to the forties, and. Uh, we're actually record, we're recording a double album right now, so we're almost finished mixing it. So cool. That's pretty hip, and I mean those are those are the acts besides just my quartet, which mm-hmm. is sort of you know the Big Willie's Burlesque without the dancers. Right. Uh, those are the the main acts I'm working with these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you how how did you 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 definitely have an on stage persona right especially with the with the burlesque thing right um, did you did you always have that in any band you're in like do you, do you well I think I started uh, you know I did this in the nineties I was in a seminal ska band called Jump with Joey with my partner Joe Altruda mm-hmm. and uh, there we used to have a, a pretty wicked banter between the two of us because it was an instrumental band it was uh-huh. like kind of we did like old Scatolite style ska like roots ska 60s style ska and um, uh, so there were no lead vocals so we would kind of like talk a lot in between and and we'd really actually talk a lot of shit and um, <laughs> and I think there is when I started kind of developing the persona but then when I started doing the burlesque thing at the 40 Deuce that's when I it really, I really developed it. Yeah, it just kind of came naturally, I guess. Yeah, know? yeah, and it really contributes to the show. Oh, completely. I mean, this is the thing that again, like most musicians don't get. It's like, it doesn't matter that I wrote these arrangements. I'm playing my ass off. I'm directing the band, mm-hmm. and I work with the dancers, working out these routines, all this stuff. All I ever hear after the show is, "Oh, I love your faces. Oh, I love the face. Oh, you're the guy with the faces. Oh, I love your faces." It's like. <laughs> So there you go. There yeah, you have it. That's that's what keeps them happy. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 
It's keeping um, me busy, keeping me in, employed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was, I, I guess I just sort of answered my own question, but I was thinking yesterday about how long you've been in this town and how long you've stayed busy. And it like this is a town that worships youth. You know, this is a town right. with a short attention span, and if, if you're over 30, like, it can be hard to get attention yeah. for anything. Yeah, I, I know, you know, people like that. Yeah, so how how have you stayed busy? How have you stayed relevant? Keep young girls taking their clothes off. <laughs> That's they don't have to be that young. They could be mid-30s. <laughs> Uh, that's a well. I, that's really. I mean, that's honestly is what it is. It's uh, a beautifully simple strategy, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, yeah, because pretty much all my regular gigs now are burlesque gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think uh, a lot of you know when it's it has been a concern of mine because I'm 53 mm-hmm. and I'm like, am I still going to be working in Hollywood clubs when I'm 60? Like, I just I don't know if I can see that or not. You yeah. Know? But when I talk to other people about it, they're like, "Why not? You know, you you know, you still, yeah, you still have a youthful vigor or whatever." You know, the comment. <laughs> yeah, is. you so, got the energy, and people still dig it. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of like the elders, the, that cool old guy. <laughs> oh, that cool old guy up there on the drums. You know. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm amazed because no vacancy. The club on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, it's right in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like yeah. you know, sequin mini dress. You know, right. And uh, I am amazed at how much love I get, how much, like, after the show, how many, you know, young young people mm-hmm. come up, you know, people in their 20s and stuff, like, floored by what I do and, right. and, and the show and stuff, you know. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's hard, you know, it gives you faith in humanity. <laughs> that, okay, I yeah, guess. Especially in Hollywood. <laughs> yes, you, you're in Hollywood here, and it's mm-hmm. like, wow, these people are actually paying attention and getting it and digging it. And, yeah. You know, so that that's good. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's, but it's it's hard because um, I think um, I've always been a little bit chameleon, and but you gotta kind of keep with the times, you know. Somewhat, I'm not saying you know you need to be like a cover band to be playing Adele and like mm-hmm. the latest covers and stuff, but you kind of got to know what tunes are current out there, and if there's a way. You could maybe do a few of them in your own, you know, uh, uh, translate it, you know, yeah. in your own way. Right. Like I do like that song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, but I do it as a swing, mm-hmm. you know, and people really dig it. Not that it's that current, but it's more current than right. some, you know. Yeah, and again, it's something people recognize. Exactly, it's yeah. recognizable, yeah. Um, so in the past, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's there's been a resurgence in vintage music and acoustic music in in kind of the whole vintage aesthetic okay um, there has been i i think so <laughs> okay. you you've been in la doing it for you know yeah, for exactly. the whole time but i think the rest right. of us <laughs> sort of okay. sort of came around to it um what do you what do you attribute that to what do you attribute the continued popularity of that music to um i would i don't know I, i'd have to say Maybe partly because the current music that's coming out is is such shit. <laughs> um, I mean, I really bemoan the loss of good songwriting. Mm-hmm. Like songwriting's just not like what it used to be. Like there aren't intros and endings or bridges or you know. Yeah. I mean, a good pop song is a good pop song, no matter you know who it is or a rock song, whatever. But it just seems like you know, listen to some Amy Winehouse tune and then. The track descends and the beat just stops. It's like, really? Right. You couldn't like 
come up with something there. Or, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just don't hear too many, too much modern music that I really care for. And there might mm-hmm. be a lot of other people in the same boat, and then they kind of go back mm-hmm. and find other things. Like it's funny, like the whole ska thing, the whole two tone, the whole rude boy, whatever thing. It's like it's like every like you know year there's young geeky people who get into it and stuff and the music's cool but it's like how long can this keep yeah. regenerating itself but it keeps to always do it there's a new fresh crop of skinheads out there or something <laughs> but um i don't know uh um well i think partly because of uh you know you know all arts somewhat intertwined uh, particularly fashion mm-hmm. uh, music and fashion are intertwined and you know and I think with these shows like Boardwalk Empire and the Great Gatsby movie and the whole kind of like retro 20s sort of thing, that's it's made it popular in culture. And like I know when I see, particularly with the Edison, and I see all the, the girls coming with the vintage dresses and the pearl, you know, just. Yeah. Uh, so I think that has, you know, fashion has something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, um, but you know the funny thing is because I actually play music from the 20s and 30s and a lot of times when people hire you for a party they're like oh it's a great Gatsby themed party or something well they just want the look right they don't want the music right or they they... and then they go oh yeah yeah Frank Sinatra yeah I'm like okay yeah sure (laughs) 20s Frank Sinatra got it yeah Yeah. what is your approach to your gear because you, okay. you play all these different gigs, a lot of them are vintage. Right. Um, you know what's what's sitting in your in your. Well, I've never been. You know, it's funny because I've never been that much of a purist. Mm-hmm. I've always been someone who's kind of crossed a lot of different genres and done a lot of different things. So when it comes to gear, again, I've never been that much of a purist. I've always been someone who played Slingerland drums. I guess just because I just always liked them. Mm-hmm. I have three Slingerland kits right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my main kit is like a. Uh, it's a Marine Pearl Slingerland kit with like a 20-inch kick and a uh, 12 and a 14 floor tom, 12 rack, 14. But um, uh, it's a it's a reproduction. It's made in '95. It's mm. not like a vintage kit. Yeah. But it, everyone thinks it's vintage. Right. You know? And I'm like, no, it's a reproduction. But it sounds great. Yeah. You know, um, that's kind of my main kit that I use most of the time for most of my gigs. Actually, on the Big Willie's Burlesque. I, I use a, a vintage, like, red sort of psychedelic swirl Slingerland kit from, like, 68. Mm-hmm. And that has the same size, except it has a, a, a 16-inch floor tom. So that's my burlesque kit, because that's a bigger floor tom. And right. it has my Big Willie's burlesque drum head. It's like, I just don't like taking bass drum heads off. So I'm like, okay, when I do the burlesque show, I use this kit. Yeah. Um, I have a, a PDP, a Pacific drum kit. That I got a cup ten years ago or something. That was I didn't want to spend the money on a DW. <laughs> Stan at Pro Drum said, "Hey, it's the same drums, it just has different hardware." Yeah. You know? And that's what I if I need like a really louder rock kit, or if I'm doing a louder Latin gig, or if it's something like I'm playing outside and I need to bring the big guns, mm-hmm. I'll bring that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, the the main thing that uh, I guess the approach that I do differently is I have a very weird uh, bell tree set up. And it's kind of like a, a hybrid on uh, Team Bali setup. Mm. I use a mambo bell, a cha-cha bell, and the jam block. Mm-hmm. And then also one a go-go, like a Brazilian thing. Right. And I put them like all in a uh, like a cross pattern the, with the cha-cha facing me, the mambo to the right, the jam block in front, and the uh, a go-go to the left. And the reason... 
I got that for the burlesque theme because I can do really fast what I call like Barney Rubble, like <laughs> kind of like fills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that would be, I guess, one big approach is that I always have the bells and you know, on the vintage, on the vintage twenties American roots music. I use it all the time mm-hmm. in all kinds of fills and stuff. And then when, of course, if I'm playing Cuban music, then I use it, you know, to play, you know, yeah. the bell part, the bell yeah. patterns. Um, so that'd be, I guess, one different approach. But I, like I said, I've never really been. I've always kind of stuck by the uh, the statement that it, it's not the drum, it's the drummer. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it seems, from what I've heard, and it, it, it seems like uh, you just need something that works. You don't get too precious no. about the drums you play or when right. they were made or by whom. Like, yeah. If, if they no, sound I, good I, and they look good, then... Yeah, I have this, you know, I like the, the, the um, Ludwig supersonic snare, like in the 70s, I've always, I got two of them. But then I got this Yamaha reproduction of it. I don't know what it's called, but it's like basically they knocked off the supersonic, and I use it all the time. I, I really like it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. But, um, but, but I got a Gretsch, an old Gretsch 50s snare when I'm doing like the. I mean, I have like a, a 28 inch bass drum and a Gretsch, you know, like from the 40s or some right. snare drum. And I got temple blocks and the splash cymbals and mm-hmm. China cymbal and all that. If I really want to go vintage with the new recession eras, I can. Right. I just find it. It, without a rack tom, it's like if you're only going to do 20s music or something, that that's fine. But then when we go into the 40s and they want me to do like a sing, sing, sing thing, I, I kind of really miss the rack tom. Yeah, yeah. Because it's harder to do lots of soloing with just a floor tom and a snare. Right. For right. me, right. at least. Um, what What is next for you? What do you have your eye on? After after leading so many bands and being here for so many years, like you gotta you got to have your next move in the back of your mind. Yeah, well, I got this new album called Schmooze Jazz, Music <laughs> to Make Deals By, and it's uh, it's mastered, so I just have to do the artwork. And is that with your quartet? Or? Yeah, it's with my quartet, and it's a bunch of recordings over many years, and it's all funky jazz, Yeah. so sort of acid jazz revival. Music so, to Make Deals By. Yeah. And uh, so I want to get that out and see what I can do with that. It's all instrumental, like I said, funky jazz music. So I don't have a lot of high hopes, but, you know, maybe get some jazz radio airplay and mm-hmm. maybe get a few things. For the new Recessionaires, uh, we got, like I said, a double album coming out. So I'm hoping to get some licensing and maybe get some more high-profile gigs, Levitt Pavilion, mm-hmm. sort of things like that with that. Other than that, I don't know. I wrote a theme song for Bernie Sanders. I got to get it to him. Cool. We'll see if maybe I can... Launch his career with my song. <laughs> um, um, I don't at the moment. I'm at a place in my in my career where I feel like I've done a lot of stuff. So I don't really. And I feel I've been successful at a lot yeah. of things too. So I don't feel that you know um, motivated to, to do too much. Right. There I mean, I mean as it is, I still work three four nights a week. And, yeah. And yeah. when I do casuals, you know, when I do private events and stuff, it's a lot of work. And, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm probably going to be moving to Portland. Really? Uh, yeah, we bought a house. My wife and I bought a house up there. So I could, that would probably be what my next move would be. And then if I move up there, I'm just not really sure. You mm-hmm. know, I'll probably be playing music, but I don't, you know. Well, that reminds me of, of something we were talking about before we started recording, which was yeah. that you were, you were saying how the, the live music market 
uh, can actually be better in in smaller cities. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about that. Why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, everybody, you know, particularly in L.A. and in New York, you know, they're in L.A. or New York, you know, to make their... It's about all about me, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's all about me. It's about mm-hmm. their career. It's about their thing. And so everybody is kind of thinking about themselves more than... You know, there aren't that many people who are here. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work at a hotel. I'm just right. floating around. Or, and in those big towns, like the, I think the objective of most people is to record and tour. Right. And and the idea of just like a local live music scene is right. not a priority for those big towns. Particularly when you know it's like as many players do, it's like you're really taken for granted in your hometown. And like, like oh, you do great in San Francisco, or we do great everywhere else, but anytime we play in L.A. or New York, it's like nobody, you know, it's... Right. You know, and, and I take that uh, part to be because, like, I don't know, people take you for granted, and it's like, oh, yeah, I saw them once, like, five years ago, yeah, or something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, I don't need to see them, or... Right. I, I don't know, I don't know. I think it's I think people are kind of jaded in the bigger cities. It's like they have so much to do and so much to go to and yeah. so much that's offered to them that it's, you know... Yeah. I I had a friend describe it once as uh, she's a she's a great singer and she said if you play in other cities around the country the audience is like they sit on the edge of their seat and they give you all, all their attention and they say entertain me yeah but if you're in LA people sit back and cross their arms and say impress me yeah okay. <laughs> yeah I can see that um, and I've found that to be true but well, like these like days it's all about people on their phone it's <laughs> like you can't even get you know what I mean like you can get them right. off the phone you know? right. right but uh, but in uh, smaller markets, you know, mid-sized, smaller cities, I think people are less jaded and mm-hmm. more genuine, and they're kind of really just kind of more into going out and having a good time. So mm-hmm. they're kind of more, I mean, I'm not trying to say people are false in L.A. I think they just don't have, you know, the sign. Life's a bit faster. They don't have the. They don't have the time. Yeah, there's a lot of demand on everybody's time and attention. Yeah, um, and it, it it kind of creates a sense that that uh, they need to be paying attention to the next thing because mm-hmm. they're missing out on on something. Right. Um, and sometimes that's true. And I've I've felt it myself. I've been. You know, I'm I'm guilty of it myself. Right. But um, uh, yeah. But it's always kind of been that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, just better, better in the smaller markets. Yeah, yeah. I think people have more time and more time to relax and enjoy themselves. Yeah. Is there a is there any type of music that that you really love that you haven't gotten to fully explore yet in a band? Yeah, Brazilian music. So that might be the next thing. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I, I really like this composer Marcos Valle, hmm. and um, he's a he's still doing it. And he's older, and he actually wrote Summer Samba back in the late bossa nova period in the 60s and he's had a really amazing career and i love his song right his songwriting is really good so yeah. i'd like to meet him i'd like to go to i've never been to brazil so i'd like to go to brazil meet him mm-hmm. hang out pick his brain yeah, yeah and whatever learn more about the escola do samba and stuff like that yeah. i mean i think i played bossa nova pretty pretty well but mm-hmm. you know there's so much other i don't really know much about the samba mm-hmm. and then it's of course, it's again like in the Afro-Cuban music. It's about how you interpret it onto the drum set, right? It's, and it's a whole different yeah. swing. There's a whole different swing Completely, to it. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, whether it's in LA or Portland or Brazilian or burlesque or whatever, I'm I'm sure you're gonna continue to put smiles on people's faces. I hope so. Thanks for talking to us. All right, man. I told you, Big Willie pulls no punches, spares no feelings. No one is safe. Uh, But that interview was a blast. It was great to get the perspective of someone who's been in L.A. for that long 
and been involved in that many projects over the years. Uh, and if you were thinking about naming your band Tupelo Sex Chain, Big Willie's here to tell you that name's taken. Uh, check out his website at willymcneilmusic.com. There's a link to it in the show notes for this episode. You can see what else Willie has done and is doing. Uh, he's been so busy for so long, I feel like we just scratched the surface uh, in the time we had. Uh, there's really a ton of content on his website. He has audio and video of the eight, that's right, eight groups he currently leads. Uh, and it's really a feast for the eyes and the ears alike. Be sure to follow Working Drummer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you dig the podcast, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. That's really helpful for us. You can also now follow the Merge Network on social media to stay up to date on all three podcasts that are part of Merge. That's the Working Drummer Podcast, the Drummer's Resource Podcast with Nick Ruffini, and the Daniel Glass Podcast. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you back here next week.